When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. The Hartford understands protecting your business with the proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid- to large-size companies like yours to help manage risk, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com. Live from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. Talking about a huge issue here is investment in marginalized communities. They want to deconstruct this package and cherry pick what they like and what they don't like. China is surging forward with major investments. Bloomberg Sound On. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. Biden has promised again and again that he will unite the country. Who do you think Biden has to watch in terms of moderate defectors? Infrastructure has always been bipartisan. Bloomberg Sound On on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Rick Davis. Coming up on the show today, we talk to Congressman French Hill and a special interview with Bloomberg's David Wesson and Senator John Ossoff. I'm Rick Davis, along with my fellow Bloomberg politics contributor, Jeannie Sean Zeno. And today we have some news coming out on infrastructure. The president was busy lobbying for his plan. Uh, Senator, uh, president Biden met with a bipartisan group of lawmakers saying he's prepared to negotiate on infrastructure. And but before make, uh, meeting with a bipartisan group of lawmakers at the White House to discuss his America's Jobs Plan, President Biden had some comments. Here's sound on his quotes. I'm prepared to negotiate as to how the extent of the minor infrastructure project, as well as how we pay for it. Democrats hope they'll pick up a few Republican votes backing President Biden's big infrastructure package. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Sumer at a briefing uh, in New York on Sunday was making clear where he stands. Sound on. We have to get things done. And if we can't work with them, we'll move forward on our own. But our choice would be to work with them. Sounds, though, like the president and the Democrats in the Senate might have some work to do to get a bipartisan support. Uh, Mississippi Republican Senator Roger Wicker on ABC this week opposing the president's $2.3 trillion infrastructure bill. Sound on. Where does the spending end? Uh, and this is a massive social welfare spending program combined with a massive tax increase. I'd like to welcome to the program Congressman uh, 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 French Hill, who uh, has been uh, regular on our program in the past. And uh, uh, Congressman, I'd like to uh, see what your reaction is to the back and forth today uh, between the president and some of the Republicans on Capitol Hill uh, regarding whether or not there's any bipartisan support for this $2.3 trillion bill. Well, Rick, Jeannie, good to be back with you today. I think the key to receive uh, bipartisan support is to be focused actually on infrastructure, be sp focused specifically on needs. 
it's time for us to redo a uh, surface transportation bill, which we do every uh, few years. So there's bipartisan support for infrastructure. But when you look at what Joe Biden outlined in his White House brief, it's a $2 trillion tax increase. And as uh, Senator uh, Weicker said, a social welfare uh, program combined with the Green New Deal. And if you break down the numbers, only about 6 percent of the bill was actually connected to what we think of as roads and transportation type issues. So I think there's work to be done. Uh, but a big tax increase and a big social welfare bill under the guise of infrastructure probably uh, has a lot of uphill work to do on the part of the president. Thanks, Congressman. Jeannie, uh, I'm curious, how do you think the president will go about lobbying, especially Senate Republicans, uh, two that usually are in the category of uh, swing voters, uh, uh, including uh, uh, Senator Murkowski, uh, weren't invited to the meeting today. And neither was uh, Joe Manchin from West Virginia, who may be the biggest swinger in the Senate. <laughs> I love that. The biggest swinger in the Senate. <laughs> That's a good one. Um, you know, I was curious as to who wasn't at the meeting as well. Um, they did, I think, opted to go with chairs and ranking members on these important committees. That's, that makes sense. But to your point, Rick, you know, missing Lisa Murkowski, uh, Mitt Romney, Susan Collins, Joe Manchin, um, some of these other folks who would be critical to making a deal. And so, Representative Hill, it's so good to talk to you again. Uh, you know, just to follow up on this, um, you know, a lot of Republicans in this moderate lane that Rick was just talking about seemed a bit dismayed by Re President Biden's comment last week that they hadn't um, been willing to strike a deal on the COVID relief. And I got the sense from some of their comments that they do not feel like these are more than just symbolic gestures. Is that what you're hearing in Congress? Uh, that's my view. My view is based on uh, what I've heard and what I've witnessed is these uh, reaching across the aisle is essentially just to be able to say that they did it. There's no concrete evidence of working together or focusing on a bipartisan list of attributes of a successful bill. It's really, if you don't agree with our $2 trillion bill, we'll do it without you, as you heard uh, Majority Leader Schumer uh, talk uh, on the tape. That's the attitude we're seeing in Congress. That's not bipartisanship. Congressman, uh, you've been hard at work on your own to try and uh, generate jobs, especially in the small business community. I understand you've just uh, announced a new piece of legislation that, that sort of takes it into your own hands and makes it Arkansas-centric. Well, I got a great idea from one of my restaurant owners, uh, Jim Keat, uh, for strengthening the Paycheck Protection Program. And Congress has routinely on a bipartisan basis, strengthened the Paycheck Protection Program and better targeted it. It turns out if you're a restaurant operator and some retailers, you don't work on a fixed quarter uh, end like 331 or 630. You work on a 13-week rolling payroll and revenue uh, process, and that makes you not eligible for Paycheck Protection, uh, really hurting uh, restaurants' ability to demonstrate the difference between their 2021 and 2020 business for a second paycheck protection loan. So I'm introducing legislation to correct that technical uh, challenge, and I hope that we'll get good bipartisan support for that, as we have with other uh, fine-tuning of the Paycheck Protection Program. Do you think future projects like this, uh, Congressman, where uh, you incorporate uh, jobs programs could be potentially a future part of the uh, – uh, the, the push by Joe Biden for his America Jobs Plan, or will these things all be done on a one-off basis? 
I think frequently it's one off, but there's uh, agreement, you know, in the area of workforce uh, training, workforce skills development, workforce education. How do we enhance people who are coming into the workforce? How do we enhance K through 12 education for people who are not college bound? And how do we take uh, folks at mid-career who want to shift focus and go into a new career area? This is where the states uh, and the federal government have a partnership with the private sector to do uh, a good job. And I've seen great success uh, here in my home state of Arkansas, and I also with my uh, co-chair of the Skilled American Workforce uh, Caucus, Brenda Lawrence, up in Michigan, have seen that same emphasis in that state. Jeannie, these kinds of programs have uh, their funding source in the Paycheck Protection Program, but a lot of debate over uh, President uh, Biden's jobs plan in the Senate especially, and a number of Democrats objecting to the way he's raising revenue with the corporate tax plan. Um, Any sense as to where there's some common ground there? Well, to your point, Joe Manchin came out not that long ago and said, you know, he wouldn't go beyond, much beyond 25 percent. And I think the Biden administration signaled that they could, you know, they could negotiate on that. But I don't think we're going to get much beyond 25 percent because, of course, as you mentioned, Joe Manchin is all powerful unless he's willing to go up. That's where it's going to end. Or, of course, if they could bring any Republicans up, which which I doubt it. And 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 representative on that point, um, As we talk about the jobs plan, another meeting the president had today had to do with the chips summit and the chip shortage and trying to secure the U.S. uh, supply chain. And one of the things that, um, you know, I've been talking to people about is what can be done from a policy perspective? We know the infrastructure, the jobs bill that we've been talking about contains a good amount of money for the semiconductor business. It also contains, as we just mentioned, a, a, a potentially a, a big increase in, in corporate taxes. What would you like to see the administration do or Congress do on the semiconductor chips issue? Well, two issues, Jeannie. First, uh, you're not going to encourage more domestic chip manufacturing in the United States by raising corporate taxes and by increasing a minimum tax on foreign earnings. These are both in the president's tax proposal. These are anti-job in the U.S. They also are uh, really undoing the key part of the Trump tax reform, which was to not double tax foreign income by corporations and encourage money to come back to the U.S. by lowering the rate, making it the most competitive in the world. And over a trillion dollars came back and we saw wages and jobs expand as a result of it. So key point is I would not raise taxes on the corporate sector if you want to encourage uh, more chip production in the U.S. Secondly, we are evaluating our supply chain. I think individual corporations and their boards of directors are doing that. And the Pentagon is doing that on key components like battery elements, chips, electronic vehicle components, energy, and, of course, all the health supplies and pharmaceutical elements that we saw at risk during the pandemic. So I think you'll see uh, bipartisan support for reforms at the Pentagon and the Defense Production Act to encourage these strategic areas. But, again, I have to start with the fact that if you want to get more production in the U.S., you shouldn't. Uh, raise the corporate tax and penalize uh, corporations who invest here.
Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. Well, thank you very much, Congressman. We appreciate you being on the show today and adding your insights to this important debate. Uh, We look forward to a future discussion with you because these issues aren't going away anytime soon. And and your expertise is really helpful to our listeners. So thank you very much for being with us today. Jeannie, um, I must say uh, it it really is interesting that the Biden administration and, and President Biden himself continues to to talk openly even today about uh, how hard he wants to work to try and get a bipartisan uh, uh, passage of uh, this infrastructure bill. But you, you, you talk to people like Congressman French Hill, and, uh, and he doesn't seem to agree with him. Uh, Real quick. Yeah, no, I, I, I think it's very, very difficult. But I know you have uh, something hey, coming up. Yep. Yep. We got something coming <laughs> up. Um, and uh, I have the uh, distinct pleasure to be able to uh, 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 say that uh, our friend David Weston from Bloomberg uh, has done an interview with uh, Democratic Georgia Senator John Ossoff, and here's the interview. To welcome him now to Bloomberg. So first of all, Senator, I, I think I have to congratulate you because there were a lot, there was a lot at stake in this. It wasn't clear what happened. Give us a sense of how you got it done. As I understand, President Biden asked you to in- intervene. Well, David, thank you for having me, and it was an extraordinary team effort. I want to commend in particular the United States Trade Representative, Ambassador Catherine Tai, her staff, and she uh, did an extraordinary job bringing this to a successful conclusion. And I got involved because this is a matter of Georgia's economic interest, 2,600 skilled jobs at this SK Innovation facility that's being built in Commerce, Georgia, billions of dollars of investment in Georgia's economy. And this is a strategic investment because we're talking about electric vehicle battery technology. The United States needs a diversified supply chain so that our auto manufacturers can access this technology so they have a choice of vendors. And we don't want to rely exclusively upon import in order to provide our automotive industry with this electric vehicle battery technology. But there was a significant intellectual property dispute between SK and LG. The options that were apparent uh, were for President Biden to consider a veto of the ruling by the International Trade Commission. That veto would have allowed SK to continue construction of this plant in Georgia, but at the cost of the integrity of our intellectual property legal regime. So I stepped in, the parties were at an impasse, I urged them back to the table. We got a negotiated settlement. LG has withdrawn its complaint at the ITC against SK. SK can continue with construction of this $2.6 billion facility in Commerce, Georgia, and 2,600 Georgians will be employed in skilled jobs producing electric vehicle battery technology. And, Senator, that is where the high drama comes from. I mean, it's in the area of climate that is a priority for the Biden administration. It is electric vehicles, which are terribly important. At the same time, protection of intellectual property is as well. Can you give us some sense of how you reconcile this? Because these two parties have been in dispute for some time. And as I understand it, you're right up against the deadline from the International Trade Commission about banning imports from SK. 
That's right. The president had 60 days from the International Trade Commission's judgment to determine whether or not he was going to veto the ITC's ruling. And that put the administration in the unenviable position of having to make a choice between the production of strategic technology in the United States, electric vehicle batteries, which are a vital part of our transition to a clean energy future, a geostrategic technology where we face substantial competition with China, and on the other hand, potentially eroding confidence in intellectual property law in the United States. Because in order for major industries to undertake significant research and development, in order to attract foreign direct investment, there needs to be confidence that intellectual property law in the United States is robust and enforced. That's why a settlement was a vital and necessary solution. The parties are no longer at odds. A payment has been made from SK to LG, so that LG withdrew its complaint at the ITC. The intellectual property law regime is intact, and George is going to get these 2,600 skilled jobs. The United States will have a diversified electric vehicle battery supply chain. Senator, can you give us some sense of how long this settlement will last for? Because obviously SK is investing a lot of money in that plant in Georgia. Uh, we would not want to have this dispute come up again in another three or four years. No, and look, they would have faced only two years in the case of uh, production of one battery component or four years in the case of production of another before they had to shut this plant completely. Now this dispute is behind us. The ITC matter has been fully withdrawn. The parties are no longer fighting it out over this intellectual property dispute. SK is continuing with this $2.6 billion investment in Georgia. I believe it's the largest foreign direct investment ever made in the state of Georgia for this plant that will employ so many people producing technology vital to our clean energy transition. What took it over the top? A lot of hard work and relentless pressure on both companies to come to a deal. Look, these are two South Korean industrial titans, both of whom have invested many billions of dollars in electric vehicle battery technology. And it took a lot of hard work by a lot of people. And I want to again commend the United States Trade Representative, Ambassador Catherine Tai, for her extraordinary contributions to the efforts to bring these companies to the table, settle the dispute, allow the ITC matter to be put to rest. We've just hours left on the clock. President Biden called me on Saturday afternoon to confirm that the deal had indeed been reached and construction of the facility in Georgia could therefore continue. So, Senator, this is not to suggest anything at all, but why did the president pick you? What in your background prepared you to get this done? Well, I don't think the president picked me. Look, I stepped in here because Georgia jobs and Georgia's economic growth were at stake. Again, 2,600 skilled jobs in and around Commerce, Georgia. This will be vital employment, generating wealth, generating opportunity for Northeast Georgia and statewide for decades to come. And David, this is going to attract other firms in the clean energy space to build and locate facilities in Georgia and create more jobs. These supply chains that are becoming increasingly integrated, the fact that we have electric vehicle battery production, one of the most significant production capacities now moving into Georgia, means that other firms involved in the electric vehicle space and the clean energy space are going to come to Georgia. I welcome them to Georgia and look forward to working with them to create more jobs in Georgia. Senator, it was widely reported beforehand that LG was saying, insisting that the deal totaled $3 billion. I don't know how much is confidential, how much is not, but it, did it basically get what it wanted? 
So the agreed settlement was a $1.8 billion payment from SK to LG, and the matter before the International Trade Commission has been resolved. And as your viewers who have been involved in complex, high-stakes negotiations know, moving those numbers over time takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of pressure. Both parties need to understand that their incentives are aligned so that they need a deal. And it takes a deadline. And it was with the clock ticking, just less than 24 hours to go until that plant might have been shuttered that we were able to get a favorable resolution, save the plant in Commerce Georgia, end the intellectual property dispute, and make a huge step forward for clean energy technology, electric vehicle production in the United States. Senator, I want to leave it where I started with just congratulations. It seems like a wonderful deal for the state of Georgia. Thank you so much to Senator John Ossoff of the state of Georgia. He is, of course, a Democrat. There's going to be much more coming up on Bloomberg Television and Radio. That was Bloomberg's David Weston with Democratic Senator uh, John Ossoff. I'm Rick Davis, along with my fellow Bloomberg politics contributor, Jeannie Sean Zeno. And joining us now on the panel is Kevin Walling, a Democratic strategist at HG Creative Media. What a fascinating transaction to have in the middle of a uh, conversation about bipartisanship and politics. This is all about the, the commerce. In fact, this deal was located in Commerce, Georgia. And so maybe, Gina, uh, you could talk a little bit about um, uh, what you're seeing here. I mean, a $1.8 billion transaction unlocking billions of dollars of investment in Georgia and hundreds of thousands of potentially good new uh, energy jobs. I, as I was listening to David and Senator Ossoff speak, I was thinking this is a lesson for Congress in terms of negotiating out this jobs deal. Um, the fact that they did this at the last minute, um, I thought David asked a really great question about how long this is in place. Senator Ossoff said it's not going to expire in two years. Um, it's the largest foreign investment ever made in Georgia. And as you mentioned, 2,600 skilled jobs in Northeast Georgia and statewide in an area of clean energy, you know, may spur uh, other business is the hope and a last minute deal in the aptly named Commerce Georgia. So it is, I, I think David was right at the end when he said congratulations to Senator Ossoff for getting this deal done and at 1.8 billion, not the 3 billion that, that was being sought initially. Kevin, uh, brand new Senator John Ossoff. Uh, what do you think this says for his uh, political prospects at home? Yeah, Jeannie, Rick, great to be with you. I thought it was a great interview uh, with David, uh, and not just for Senator Ossoff's prospects, but certainly his colleague in the Senate, uh, Senator Warnock, who faces Georgia voters in just two years. Of course, he filled uh, a, a shorter-term uh, seat in the Senate. Uh, so I think that is not uh, just going to be critical for John Ossoff as a brand-new senator, the youngest senator uh, currently serving, uh, but certainly more so for his colleague, who can also tout the benefits of that facing voters in two years, and, and particularly Stacey Abrams, too, who can now run on helping to flip those two Georgia Senate seats when she likely runs for governor against the incumbent Brian Kemp. So there's a lot of politics, I think, involved uh, with certainly all the eyes back on Georgia just two years from now. Kevin, uh, you know, just staying on that topic for one second real quick is uh, one of the things we didn't talk much about is the economic and political fallout from the Georgia voting changes. And 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 Senator Ossoff is uh, basically told the president of the United States, hey, stay out of our business. Uh, we want MLB to keep their their all star game in uh, in Atlanta. What what do you think of that development? Yeah, Rick, I think, you know, it's a delicate dance that both the senators have to play now. They've got to protect their, their home flank, right? And these businesses, Coca-Cola, 
Delta, others that have come out against SB uh, 202, the Senate uh, bill that was signed by uh, Governor Kemp about voting restrictions and, and some voter access uh, components as part of that. Uh, it's certainly, I think, problematic for some of the politics um, at home. I think it, it rests squarely, likely, on, on Governor Kemp and the Republican legislature. But certainly uh, you have the two, Repo- the two Democratic senators, new senators, uh, coming out against that boycott because it will hurt Georgia businesses. Um, so it's definitely a delicate dance for these two new members. Jeannie, was uh, Mitch McConnell right when he told the corporations like Delta and uh, and Coca-Cola to stay out of politics? Or has uh, has has you, is this going to resolve itself in a way that's positive? You know, Mitch McConnell, I think his call fell on deaf ears. Uh, the, the, over the weekend, as we know, there were over 100 CEOs from some of the biggest corporations in the country, if not the world, on a, on a call talking about this very issue. And by reports of people who were on the call, many of them agreed to sign on to fight some of these changes, the next one coming up in Texas. And, and of course, as we talk about, we should just say, uh, John, uh, you know, Senator Ossoff, what a difference between President Trump, Joe Biden not taking credit for this deal, but letting this junior senator from Georgia do it. So I was quite struck by that difference as well. <laughs> thanks, Jeannie. And uh, uh, thanks, Kevin. I mean, we're going to have uh, more on this interview. And uh, we're also going to take up some topics related to Chairman Powell's uh, interview on 60 Minutes over the weekend, and uh, and we're going to be hearing from uh, uh, a number of other topics. Uh, it, there's there's a lot going up on Capitol Hill right now, and we're going to explore it in depth. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Roger that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. I'm Rick Davis, along with my fellow Bloomberg political contributor, Jeannie Shanzano, and also with us is Kevin Walling, Democratic strategist at HG Creative Media. You know, we've been talking a little bit about uh, uh, the uh, investment uh, going on in Georgia that uh, David Wesson just had an interview with uh, Senator Ossoff and an immense amount of infrastructure that's going in there and to some degree impacting uh, our uh, relationship with China, uh, a, a manufacturing facility that might otherwise would have gone there. And so I wanted to uh, play uh, a little bit of uh, sound right now on what President Biden has been saying about strong bipartisan sh- support for fixing the chip shortage and securing U.S. supply chain. Um, he said that China is not waiting to address this issue, and there's no reason why the U.S. should be either. Uh, The president spoke during a virtual CEO summit on the semiconductor and supply chain resiliency. Here's the sound. This is an issue that has broad support in the United States Congress. We talked about whether or not we're doing anything in terms of bipartisanly. Well, we are. Both sides of the aisle are strongly supportive of what we're proposing and and, and where I think we can uh, really get things done for the American people. China and the rest of the world is not waiting. And there's no reason why Americans should wait. 
Kevin, I I wanted to ask you, it seems to me we're the ones who are waiting. Uh, the China has uh, kept us from being able to get a supply of uh, chips. Uh, it's the cause of a lot of disruption in the auto industry. Uh, do you see anything coming out of the Biden administration right now that would look like uh, a more aggressive approach like sanctions? Yeah, Rick, it's a good question. I, I think there is, you know, some uh, semblance of action coming out, not just from the administration, but also the Senate. And this actually... You know, talking about infrastructure, and, and I love the interview that you had with Congressman Hill uh, and the potential, albeit more difficult, road for bipartisanship on the infrastructure front. Uh, but there is a bipartisan bill with regards to China uh, that's making its way through the Senate, actually shepherded by uh, the majority leader, Chuck Schumer. Um, and that'll come, obviously, on the heels of uh, the first currency report. Obviously, that is a key concern uh, coming out of China in terms of how they uh, value their currency. Uh, and I think that will be also a key component of this uh, China bill that, uh, by all indications, uh, will kind of unite both Republicans and Democrats, at least in the upper chamber. Hey, Jeannie, I was wondering, uh, you know, we talk a lot about um, uh, geopolitics on this show. And, uh, and and I think Kevin makes a good point. Is is, is China the one sort of rallying cry uh, around uh, bipartisanship in, in the House and Senate right now? And and if so, is there a bill that um, that is going to be, I think, propagated by the administration that 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 both Republicans and Democrats can get around uh, dealing with issues like supply chain? It, it does seem that China is the one issue that unites Republicans and Democrats across the United States. I think the the difficulty, of course, is always in how these bills are written and what they propose to do. And I think when we just talked to Representative Hill, he made very clear what is the dividing line here. I The president deserves a lot of credit for hosting this summit today, bringing these people together to have a really important discussion. The problem is, what do you do about it? And is a corporate tax increase going to work against us as we not just, and I understand the and the, the sort of uh, idea of sanctioning, but it's long term, we can't just sanction China. We need to be developing these technologies here at home. And how do you incentivize business to do that? That I think is going to be the rub. And I do think they could come together to do that. But of course, right now we're looking at an infrastructure jobs bill which even though it invests in the semiconductor space, also includes this enormous tax increase to pay for it. And they seem to be something that won't bring the two sides together. Kevin, is that the logjam we're in? Is that we've got a bill that can spur our domestic manufacturing in this area to create jobs, high paying, you know, technology jobs. Uh, but the way we want to pay for it is so, uh, uh, I'd say, negative by the Republicans that we're going we're gonna to stymie our opportunities to take advantage of this opening. Yeah, Rick, I think, you know, Jeannie is absolutely right in terms of the trade-offs behind the, the, the price tag of this legislation and now kind of new willingness coming out of this Oval Office meeting uh, with some of the Republican uh, members uh, with President Biden today where he has indicated he wants um, potentially some changes in, in terms of how we pay for this uh, and maybe the overall total uh, number. But to Jeannie's point, I think it's a very good one. Any kind of solution in the short term? Uh, is not going to solve the crisis that we have when it comes to supply chain management um, that's going on right now in terms of domestic supply. Uh, I think the Biden administration can hopefully take a cue from what it's doing on the COVID front with supply chain. They've really hit the ground running, focusing like a laser on supply chain specifically um, in terms of domestic vaccine distribution. Um, and we'll happily, likely have to do that now with these different uh, sectors when it comes to 
uh, material and, and manufacturing. With regards to chips, when it comes to electric vehicles that has a huge market in Asia and overseas, you know, how do we adapt some of these industries to take the best of what they're seeing in terms of the COVID supply chain and apply it to other sectors? Kevin, it's a really good point. I mean, we've used the Federal Production Act to manufacture everything from uh, face masks to PPE. And, uh, and, and I wonder, is there an argument uh, to be made for the manufacturing of uh, uh, more high-tech items? Does the government, the federal government, step in and either finance or use some of their infrastructure to create uh, opportunities for the private sector to fill the vacuum that uh, that China has filled. It, it seems to me a perfect chess piece play for China, who's withholding these uh, these very necessary um, uh, chips, and uh, and and would actually help create new jobs at a time when we're trying to promote. Uh, um, you know, U.S. job growth. Uh, we're going to hear more about that job growth coming up uh, in a discussion about Chairman Powell's 60-minute uh, interview. Um, uh, more on that when we uh, come back from the break. Uh, I'm Rick Davis, and this is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Sound On on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Rick Davis, along with my fellow Bloomberg political contributor, Jeannie Sean Zeno. And also with us is Kevin Walling, Democratic strategist at HG Creative Media. You know, this Sunday, uh, Chairman Powell, Federal Reserve Board, was on 60 Minutes. And he talked about why the economy is poised for stronger growth. He said the Federal Reserve Chairman said that uh, the U.S. economy is an, at an inflection point with stronger growth and hiring ahead. Thank you to rising vaccinations and powerful policy support, Biden administration. But COVID-19 remains the threat. We have sound on his interview. What we're seeing now is really an economy that seems to be at an inflection point, and that's because of you know widespread vaccination and strong fiscal support, strong monetary policy support. We, we feel like we're at a place where the economy is about to start growing much more quickly and job creation coming in much more quickly. So the principal risk to our economy right now really is that the disease would spread again. That was Chairman Powell. Uh, I'd like to talk a little bit first about uh, the jobs issue. Kevin, you know, we just had a conversation between David Weston and Senator Ossoff over bringing thousands of jobs to Georgia in high-tech battery technology. Um, you know, we've been debating uh, all during this show today the bipartisan lack of bipartisanship uh, related to the infrastructure bill. And it sounds like the uh, chairman of the Federal Reserve, uh, uh, regardless of where we are today, seems to think the economy is on the mend and that these jobs may be coming back. Do we really need a big congressional bill in order to achieve uh, job growth uh, like we had before the pandemic? Yeah, Rick, it's an excellent question. You know, I, I, and I think what you uh, pointed out rightly at the outset of this uh, conversation it was Powell's word saying that we're at an inflection point. Those two words were the key takeaway from um, that 60 Minutes uh, interview that I saw, because he does talk about the, you know, the 900,000 new workers that were added to payrolls um, last month. Um, but the, at the same time, we're seeing some new state jobless claims uh, climbing in just the latest uh, weekly report of last week. So we are at that inflection point. Uh, the Biden administration, is, as you point out in the question, is really banking on this American jobs uh, uh, package. They're not calling it the infrastructure bill. We're talking about it in cadence in terms of it being an infrastructure bill, but they're really hammering, as you saw, the five kind of l lieutenants 
in the cabinet that are responsible for the American jo Jobs Cabinet um, out there making the case of the jobs numbers um, including uh, in that package. Now, they, they got a little brushback, you know, to, to pull a baseball term in now that we're in baseball season um, from some of these numbers uh, that, that have been kind of bandied about um, in terms of what the bill will actually do in terms of creating jobs. But that's certainly going to be the, the inflection point for the Biden administration uh, is the jobs component of this bill. Jeannie, part of the inflection point that the chairman is referring to, too, is the pandemic. Um, he does point out in the interview uh, very clearly that the one thing that could disrupt a uh, economy that seems to be on the mend and marching forward is a uh, resurgence of coronavirus. And uh, we've seen uh, significantly more uh, travel. Uh, airports are full again. Uh, part of the reason why you see some of the economy coming back is 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 the risk we're taking with reopening um, uh, offset by the risk we have uh, for potentially having to shut down again uh, due to a spread of the coronavirus. I wish I could come up with good baseball metaphors like Kevin can. I'm horrible with sports <laughs> metaphors. But I, I really had several reactions to this interview. Number one, it wasn't that long ago that when Chairman Powell was interviewed, one of the first things he would be asked was about the attacks coming from the president, then President Trump, as we all recall. And of course, it was striking to hear him in an interview where there was none of that discussed. And then to your point, I think how bullish he is on the economy and the fact that he described the key risk that we face now is from the pandemic and some kind of resurgence of that. What I was struck by no mention, as far as I heard, of the risk of a massive investment that overheats the economy. And that was very, very striking to me. And to this point about jobs, of course, and you just mentioned David's great interview with Senator Ossoff about this, uh, you know, really important deal that was just struck. Does this ability to bring back jobs and the good jobs numbers we're hearing actually work against the administration as they go to make this massive investment? I didn't hear much on that from him, and I haven't heard much on that from other members of the administration who have been out touting this bill for the last couple of weeks. Yeah, it's a really good point, and uh, and I think you didn't foul off that pitch. Uh, I appreciate <laughs> I the, knew uh, you'd have a good one, Rick Davis. Oh, I'm angry. I love it. <laughs> but, you I've know, got nothing. <laughs> Jeannie, just to follow up, though, I mean, it is interesting in the interview, He, uh, uh, the chairman did indicate that he felt the economy was not at risk of uh, uh, inflation and that the federal funds rate would not increase in the near term. Uh, I, I, I guess the question I would have is, shouldn't this bolster the confidence that the Congress has, especially the debate that's going on in the Senate on how to pay for things like the infrastructure bill, uh, that the economy is going to grow and be able to absorb some of the increase in uh, revenue that uh, the Biden administration is talking about? Well, that's what the chairman keeps saying. That's what Janet Yellen keeps saying. You listen to our other colleague, Larry Summers. He had a really interesting interview I read in the Financial Times today. Um, you know, that there is uh, there are other risks or dangers out there. And, and that, to me, is something that I'm curious doesn't get. I mean, I understand politically why. But from the Fed chairman, I thought he would at least give that more of a nod than I heard in the interview. I, I understand Yellen, of course, and other members of the administration. But the, the chairman of the Fed, I, I found that curious. Uh, yeah. And Kevin, uh, another issue that uh, Chairman Powell brought up in that interview was something that we don't talk much about uh, uh, related to Capitol Hill, but it's a burning issue in Wall Street. And that is 
the digital dollar, the digital economy, uh, uh, Bitcoin. Uh, and he said he was studying the digital dollar and yet expected Congress to really take the lead on uh, any kind of uh, legislation that would be needed to incorporate the digital dollar as part of the Federal Reserve. Uh, is, is there any appetite right now in Congress with all the other issues that we're dealing with to dive into to Bitcoin and, and, and the digital dollar? Yeah, Rick, I, you know, I'm, I'm kind of laughing a little bit just in thinking about the previous kind of tech hearings that we've seen about Facebook and Twitter and things like that. And some of these older members that just have no idea what these platforms are or what they do. And they're being handed by, you know, notes from their staff and stuff like that. I think that'll be a really interesting uh, hearing. And certainly I think, you know, Chairman Powell is right that Congress needs to step in and do something about this, whether it be Chairwoman uh, Waters, who uh, led uh, those hearings, as we remember, just a few weeks ago about GameStop. Right. Um, so I think, you know, financial services uh, would likely take the lead on that in the House. But it would be really interesting, I think, to see uh, Congress step in with, you know, so many members over 70, over 80. I'm not an ageist, but you know, dealing with things like Bitcoin and, and the uh, the future kind of digital economy would be, I, I think, certainly an interesting hearing for sure. Yeah, we, we've seen quite a bit of debate, as you point out, on uh, in the House especially on um, the big tech and, and their role in everything from privacy to uh, to competition, uh, to, um, uh, you know, the uh, fake news. And, and so it's kind of hard to believe that there's a lot of appetite to think that that, that digital economy is translatable into currency. Uh, but we've also seen massive increases in value of things like Bitcoin and the digital economy. And, uh, and, and my impression is that it's really Wall Street that's taking the lead on it. Uh, groups like uh, 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 you know, J.P. Morgan and 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 others are really looking into uh, facilitating uh, more uh, dependable transactions. So it'll be interesting to see how much Congress starts to feel the heat around this. You know, to create some rules of the road uh, so that these bigger institutions, uh, including the Fed, can get some direction from them. Uh, I'm, I'm curious now, uh, maybe Jeannie, what do you see this week coming about? Uh, you know, we've started off with a big push by the administration for bipartisanship uh, around their legislative uh, uh, proposals, uh, but, uh, but you know, uh, tampered a little bit by the uh, fight with China on, uh, on, on, on supply chain. Uh, you see anything on the horizon that uh, is going to change that narrative? I don't. You know, I'm looking and I see, obviously, Congress back in session early this week, so uh, today and tomorrow. Um, and, you know, it's very seems to be very little appetite for bipartisanship on this massive issue. Um, you know, I, of course, have to tell you that I have been waiting patiently. Tomorrow is the release, speaking of Congress, of John Boehner, uh, former Speaker of the House's book, where he dishes an awful lot. Um, and I think there are lessons there for the Republican party to pay attention to as they try to negotiate something we didn't talk about, but Donald Trump's uh, comments uh, in Florida over the weekend. So I think an awful lot coming up this week on that front, not to mention, as you said, supply chain, China, and of course, what's happened in Iran and the, the, the what's happening with Iran vis-a-vis -vis their comments on Israel. Yeah, I think that uh, your point about the uh, sleeping giant in uh, in uh, in Florida, the former president, Donald Trump, and some of the comments he's making to try and get back into the game uh, have been uh, pretty revealing. Uh, I went back on the attack against uh, uh, Senator Mitch McConnell, uh, basically told him he, he didn't know what he was doing. Uh, and that echoed uh, in the interviews that uh, that. Uh, 
um, uh, the former speaker has been talking about with his book. Uh, so uh, I think we've got a lot to look forward to this week. It'll be uh, both interesting and entertaining. That's it for today's show. I'm Rick Davis. This is Bloomberg. I want to thank our guests and uh, have a good Monday night. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Roger that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch strata coaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com.